0: Hey guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Chuck Holden. He's a uh, professor at St. Mary's College, Maryland, my alma mater, and um, we're going to talk about the topic of income inequality and what it means in in terms of politics, both in terms of history and you know looking at um, what's going on today in terms of the economy and so forth. So, Chuck, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today.
1: My pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background?
1: Sure. So, I come from a very small town in, in Iowa, Scranton, Iowa, is in west central Iowa, population of about 600, um, farm family. Uh, but then I did my undergraduate degree up at St. John's University in Minnesota, where I was a business major. Um, After that, I worked in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, for a few years before I got the history bug and went off to get my master's at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And from there, off to get my PhD at Penn State University uh, in US history. I finished there in 97, and i taught for a couple of years at University of North Carolina in Greensboro, and then was hired by St. Mary's College in Maryland, Um, and went there in 1999, and have been there since, and I teach a wide range of American history courses at St. Mary's.
0: Awesome. I was a uh, history and political science uh, double major, so... uh excellent <laughs> i loved it <laughs> it's um a great it yeah. is it's amazing i mean uh yeah, you know enough can't be said for a liberal arts education and being able to integrate different ideas into uh kind of larger newer ideas absolutely so you had recently uh published a, a work about uh spiro agnew who was a uh I guess he was governor or lieutenant governor of Maryland? or Governor, yeah. Governor, okay. And he was also vice president. What was the, the nature of the book that you'd written? So, um, a
1: couple of co-authors, Zach Lucetti and uh, Jerry Poder and I um, uh, published a book last uh, autumn just a couple months ago with the University of Virginia Press. Uh, it's called Republican Populist, Spiro Agnes. And the origins of Donald Trump's America. And, yeah, and and, and you're right, Agnew was uh, the governor of Maryland before that, he'd been Baltimore County executive, Um, and then, um, but before that, he was just, you know, part of a post-World War II uh, move to the suburbs generation, which we can talk about a little bit later in terms of the history of, of income, income equality. But uh, for this book, what what we wanted to do was uh, look at how, especially as vice president, um, Agnew uh, injected a, a political style that, at the highest level, I mean, he's the vice president of the United States, um, that we hadn't really seen before, where the rough and tumble of a campaign was, um, Usually if you win, if you become president or vice president, the expectation was you would transition to a more statesman-like role. Um, and with
0: All right, so sorry about that. We uh, had a technical difficulty with some leaf blowers outside and uh, (laughs) had to, uh, I couldn't hear anything, so I apologize to listeners, but uh, Chuck, you were talking about, you were talking about Agnew and how he kind of took on a different role in the Nixon administration as a vice president, So, so talk a little bit about that and what that means for where we're at now. Sure, okay.
1: Decision making um, right away, and which isn't terribly unusual for a vice president. But, but Nixon had promised Agnew that he would have a role, and when when Agnew realized this um, early on, so they take office in January '69, uh, and Agnew is you know reduced to the ribbon cutting role, and he's bored and he's not very happy. And he decides that he's just going to basically go back out on the campaign trail, so to speak. And so, with some help from some Nixon speechwriters, mainly Pat Buchanan, mm. um, they go back out, and he gives in, in uh, especially in the autumn of 1969, this series of you know rip roaring, very political speeches aimed at at the Nixon administration's. Domestic political enemies, you know, the, you know, so they're not they're not lashing out at, at the Soviets. They're lashing out at the Democrats hmm. and and at higher education and at the media, especially the press, was a big one. Um, and it was really controversial. Uh, and and from their perspective, from Agnew's perspective, and from Nixon's perspective, it was hugely successful. Um, it really pushed. Um, it really pushed the leaders of higher education on their back foot. It pushed the media on their back foot. Uh, it made Agnew kind of a rock star among the, the so-called silent majority. Um, and, and, and so this, so from, from the book's perspective, we're, what we're arguing is that there is a political style that is emerging, um. Even at the level of the presidency and the vice presidency, where it's just no holds barred, it's always be on the offensive, it's never admit you're wrong, um, and that that style is is you know part of the, the Agnew legacy that we can still see we can see resurface over the years, a um, little bit in Ronald Reagan, uh, but but mainly in like Sarah Palin, uh, the Tea Party movement. And then, you know, clearly, you know, I don't know whether he consciously did this, but this certainly characterizes President Trump's political style too, where he's just always, always, always on the offensive. Uh, so that's that's sort of the, the big takeaway from the Agnew book.
0: So how does this then relate back to kind of the politics of income inequality and, right. and division?
1: Right, so what he tapped into, what Agnew tapped into, um, was a growing sector of American society that was beginning to feel economically mm. anxious about yeah. their place. And mm. it is that it is that that it's the World War II generation. Uh, these are these are Great Depression babies. Um, they 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 grew up during the Great Depression. Agnes was born in 1918. Um, They they experienced that, they experienced World War II, they come out of World War II, and what do they want? They want stability, they want security. Um, And they, to a large degree, for a while, seem to get it after World War II. There's very impressive GDP, Uh, the middle class is expanding impressively, there's access to... um, There's access to to mortgages, there's access to higher education, Uh, you have a growing white-collar economy, there's access to those jobs. And, you know, through the late 40s and then through the 50s, that looks pretty good for a lot of people, including the Spiro Agnews of the world. He moves out of Baltimore City um, and gets his law degree going to night school and moves out to the suburbs, moves out to Baltimore County in the the late 40s, has a kind of a small law office, but, you know, works his way up, has a nice home and has four kids and watches TV and reads Reader's Digest and is doing that whole white suburban middle-class thing. And for a good, you know, 10, 15 years, that seems to be, you know, a pretty good way of life, but already by the early 60s. You know, you can start to sense the some anxiety uh, within those, that same generation. And there's a there, James Baldwin, the writer, uh, really put his finger on it that for that suburban white middle class, that the consumerism that was very much a part of that middle class made them really anxious. So they would have mm. they had the they had the resources. Uh, to buy a color television, for example. Oftentimes they borrowed the money, but they, they had access to the resources to get the material comfort to the middle class. But it brought with it then this new set of, of worries. It's not just that you can afford a car. Can you afford the right car? Can yeah. you afford the car that your neighbors can afford? And it was so keeping forth. up
0: with the Joneses. Exactly. Exactly. And, and
1: and there was a lot of status tied into your ability to do that, to keep up with the jobs, And and the way James Baldwin describes it is that the great fear that that the the Agnew, silent majority generation, we'll call them, the great fear is that they'll make a misstep, right? They'll make a bad investment. Uh, they won't get that promotion. Um, and, and if you have to take a step back on the socioeconomic ladder, we might think, oh, well, you know, tough break. We'll just work hard and we'll pull ourselves back up. No, the fear, James Baldwin says, was that step back is a step back into chaos. And that's, that's the word that Baldwin uses. And when you look at Agnew, uh, even as a, just a local politician – As a county executive, for example,
0: he's going around Baltimore County, and and you know Baltimore County is large, and he's going around and he's talking to,
1: you know, the Elks and the Knights of Columbus, and he's giving these speeches, and what what Jerry and Zach and I did is we took a look at those early speeches, which no one had really looked at before, Um, and what you see is this anxiety just underneath the surface. Mm. Of, of, of we are so pressed and, and you know, we're, there's so much pressure on us to as you say, keep up with the Jones um, now where that has a political effect is their, their children um, their children are being brought up with rock and roll and they're being brought up with the civil rights movement and they're being brought up in the counterculture and that search for stability and security that, that drove their parents, that same security and stability does feel stifling to the kids. Hmm. And so we've, we've got a big generational gap, you know, a big generational clash uh, starting to emerge um, in, in the mid and late 60s. And Agnew then, um, he re- not only is he sort of a product of that, right? Not only is he living that, but he taps into it as well. Uh, and so that's where, you know, he's, he's, he's sort of a suburban populist, mm. where he's reaching out to those white, working-class, middle-class people um, who are feeling like the government is not listening to them, uh, the media is not is, does not pay attention to their worries, the culture, you know, TV, Hollywood, rock and roll, they're, you know, they're promoting messages we don't like, right? And and that we feel really does connect back to that that kind of base economic anxiety that what if the what if the economy is not always, you know, stable and robust, right? It's been hard enough to maintain our home and our televisions and our, you know, being able to send our kids to college, even though the economy is going pretty well. Yeah your
0: bit, what happens if it doesn't? Then well, where are we? well, during the during the 50, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, one of the great equalizers was the unions. Unions yeah. had, well, that was their heyday in terms of political yeah. and economic strength and being able to create that kind of security for people. But then with I guess with the recessions starting in the 70s and right. kind of the ascension of Japan as an economic competitor, like the 70s were a lost decade economically, and I can see where that obviously became some of the proof of "see, I told you" from that regard. So, yeah, and, and the,
1: you're absolutely right, and that you know the the what we now refer to as the Rust Belt, right? that yeah. That de- industrialization is really starting to, to kick in by the 70s. You're absolutely right, and that, that, and the way that works itself politically is, is it takes a while. It takes you know a good couple decades, but um, those, those kind of uh, White union voters in places like Ohio or Pennsylvania, um, that as this process of deindustrialization is happening, and, and there's not much that the union can do to stop
0: it, no. right? Um, what, what the
1: conservatives are able to do is then start to make a sort of cultural appeal to those voters. Right? Whereas in the 30s and 40s, the Democratic Party would have been able to say, you know, you got to stick with us, right, because we're, we're the party of labor. Um, and, and as those jobs disappear, right, then what's, what's going to take that? There's a vacuum created there in terms of, you know, what, what is it that, you know, gives our life meaning. And, and the Republicans are able to, uh, you know, play on some of the cultural issues.
0: So so at this point, though, then it, it seems like you have kind of the, the right-wing uh, view appealing to the worker, but then also the corporations, right, in terms mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. both the people who are being employed and the people who are supposed to be employing them and saying, I'll help each of you. Yeah. And that's, that's right. Doesn't really seem consistent to me. Um, it's not, <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in order to be politically effective. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I think what, you know, Nixon and Agnew were thrilled that they were starting to get what they called the hard hat folks. Right. The, the guys who, who were hard ass to work. Um, and one of the ways in which they were able to kind of peel them off from the Democratic Party, kind of the, the party of labor, was to, to link the Democratic Party of the late 60s with the hippies, with the anti-war movement, again, the, the sort of cultural issues, and, and say, you know, they don't really care about you. They're, the Democratic Party, I mean, look at, look at the 72 campaign with, with McGovern. Yeah. Right. They're they're able to appeal to those kind of hard hat voters and say, you know, George McGovern uh, campaign doesn't care about you. He's more concerned about, um, you know, about the anti war movement, right? Um, and a lot of those working class guys, you know, would not, you know, would not have been gotten college deferments from Vietnam. There's good likelihood they would have been to Vietnam. And and so, you know, so the, you know, we're the home. The Republican Party. Then, you know, Nixon, uh, he's able to kind of pull them into the Republican ranks, pretty successfully. Uh, you know, not not overnight, obviously. It takes a while because by the time you get to the '80s, um, you know, Reagan is still kind of banging on that drum, um, trying to pull kind of white working class Democrats into the Republican Party. Uh,
0: what what they used to call the Republican uh, the Reagan Democrats. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so right, it, it takes a while, uh, but when we really start to see that kind of peeling off um, is really in the, in the late 60s, and, and, and our and our view is that Spiro that agony played a, a, a role in that that, that really hasn't been um, understood.
0: So Reagan in the 80s really initiated... It became a uh, kind of a demarcation in terms of income inequality. Um, Yeah. You know, with the, it seemed like government policy shifted to more tax breaks for the rich and for corporations as a way to have trickle down wealth um, generated, which obviously has been Disproved by a number of economists as being right. in any way worthy of of happening, but um, like how did how did that happen? Like within that pivotal period of a couple of years, it's like attitude shifted from right. from one to the other, from one yeah. direction to basically giving away the store to corporations. How did that happen? Right. No, great question. So if you're
1: through the mid-60s and through the 70s and into the 80s, if, if, if you are able to make the case, as as people like Richard Nixon uh, were able to do, uh, that, that government has gotten out of control. It's not only it's gotten too big, it's out of control. And... And it is responding to the needs of people who are not you, right? Uh Uh, And that can take any number of forms. They can Mm -hmm. point to any number of developments the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, fair housing, early affirmative action programs, uh, the creation of the EPA, the creation Mm -hmm. of the Department of Education, on and on and on. You know, by the time you get to Reagan, right, Reagan can, can point to all of these. Uh, what progressives would say were good and worthwhile advancements, right? Yeah. Uh, but Reagan would say, uh-huh. this is just government gotten out of control, and so what I propose to do is try to roll back uh, roll back as, as much as we can. That includes business regulation, yeah. right? If you can lump business regulation in with, you know, government trying to do too much, um, uh, which he does, then when Reagan wins, he can begin to roll back, uh, you know, cut welfare programs, cut, uh, you know, slow the rise of of public education, cut EPA regulations, um, and and do all of this in the name of, of not just, you know, not just, you know, helping corporate America, which clearly it's doing, but he's able to pitch to, you know, a guy in middle America, look, I'm helping to get government out of your way, too. We're just going to free up, you know, free up the, the, the economic forces of capitalism and let it do its thing. And that's very appealing to people. But as you say, it, it, just,
0: it doesn't work very well. Right? Yeah, but um, it it all, it all goes to what you're saying, though, is all of it is based on this politics of division, of I'm helping you. Yeah. Not helping them and well, identifying them right. as the enemy and and obviously right. then them being like progressive forces are then kicked yeah. back on their heels and not able to kind of resist that yeah. tide. Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. You're, so the, you know we saw this back in the '30s with the Great Depression, yeah, yeah. Uh, where where Americans really began to understand, you know,
1: when when that. Even in a capitalist system, when when that thing goes off the rails, as it did in the late 20s and early 30s, it's taken almost everybody with it. No matter of whether you saved and worked hard and you know were thrifty and and sober, there's a good chance it can take you with it. Well, that was the, one of the lessons learned from the Great Depression. Jump ahead to the 60s, where you get uh, people like Michael Harrington. Michael Harrington published a book in the early 60s called The Other America, in which he claimed to have, and this is the word, discovered poverty mm. again in America. And, and that kind of
0: reignited this, this question over, you know, why are some people in American society still poor? Yeah. And and the Great Society, then, Johnson's Great Society, is created to
1: address some of those structural uh, institutional biases against people of color, against people in rural areas, people in Appalachia, people in the reservation, so forth. Right? That the reason why those people are poor is that is that, you know, the system has been blocked so that they've never really had an opportunity to succeed. Okay. Mm. Now jump ahead to the eighties and sure enough we get a return of an explanation
0: of why people are poor that says, well, you know, somehow they just didn't cut it. Yeah. And
1: and so therefore, why should we have the, all these programs, right? Um, so you're right. And and that, you know, that, if that's your view of why some people are poor, then the policy implications to that are pretty clear, that, that, that they don't deserve any help. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so all of those whether it's Great Depression or Great Society programs that
0: were there, not just to help the poor, but to really solidify the middle class too. Yeah. They start to be
1: stripped away. The middle class starts to be hollowed out.
0: And then in the end result is really then you have no real upward mobility for the ninety nine percent. You know, there's really no opportunity for them to do be better than their parents did. It's really tough. It gets
1: harder over the years, no doubt about it. And we're, I think, we're
0: living in that now for yeah. sure. So one of the, um, one of the um, essences of what what you're saying is this this kind of individualization of risk. You know that, you know, it's up to you whether you make it or not. This, uh, uh, what would you call it, um, Darwinian um, outlook in terms of survival that, you know, well, they can't make it. They just weren't good enough. So, you know, they just, they're just not going to make it anyway. So why bother versus an approach which came out of, I would say FDR and progressive policies of the value of community and being able to support each other. Like, Government has a role to help people, you know, help the lowest in society, not just the, the highest, right? Yeah. But community right. is key to that in that part of a solution.
1: Definitely. Uh, definitely. No, no question about it. And, and you, you know, what, 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 what the architects of the great society are saying in uh, the New Deal, but in the Great Society, you know, they're to the, to the, to the idea that it, it's still around, that, that, well, you know, poor people just, you know, just didn't cut it. What the architects of the Great Society are saying is, well, how do we know? You know? <laughs> they never had a shot, you know? Um, they never had a chance to succeed in the way that, yeah. that other people have. And so, um, and so, so, so these programs that come out of the Great Society for public education, for for infrastructure, right? They're they're geared both both toward kind of shoring up a stable community, but they're also geared toward giving people a chance to see what they can do, right? To to it's you know that this idea that one that individual initiative exists in sort of this atomized society where we're all just a bunch of atoms, right? Yeah. Uh, what the Great Society was doing is saying, no, we're 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 good with individual initiative. That's great. We want to try and level the playing field. Yeah, right. Along which people, you know, more people's individual initiative can have a chance
0: to compete. Yeah. Well, the irony is the irony is that you know you look at society today, and we have basically corporate socialism. You know, we have corporations being uh supported whether they're economically beneficial or healthy or not based on um their donations to political political particular political action committees and so forth so right that's true
1: and and there you know there, it is it is complicated though isn't it i mean if you look at 2008 um, you know the the last months of 2008 when, when the meltdown was happening, and you know the last months of the Bush administration and the early months or even the inter, the uh, the interregnum between Bush and Obama. Um, what do we do with the automobile industry, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this notion of too big to fail, right? And this is a this is a problem, and I don't have a solution for it, but it's a problem that. You know, we've gotten to a point where some of these economic entities are are so uh, vital uh, that you know that do we do we want the automobile industry to fail completely? because like, well, too bad you guys couldn't cut it, you know. And, and obviously, the, and both the Bush team and the Obama team said, no, we don't. You know, so is that corporate socialism? Well, yeah, maybe. And but you know at certain points maybe it's understandable um, that you know that so this notion of too big to fail which is which is a tricky one right because mm-hmm. on the one hand you feel like my god these these corporations have been given handout after handout update tax break after tax break you know for years you know they've they've had you know they've had the advantage of the community's tax resources to build the roads and to hire the cops and to teach the kids or the employees and and, you know, and, and, and now, they, now they want the government to bail them out. That's, a, you know, yeah, I get that frustration, too.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I would say, like, I guess my beef is you can't argue that you want and you don't want the regulations to bind your hands as a corporation. That you don't want, like, the oversight or you don't want government meddling in what you do. And then, at the same time, when it doesn't pay off, ask for a free pass. Like you can't have it both ways, in my opinion. Like if we would have, if you would have had, take the example of GM. One of the big issues was the uh, the debt overhang from years of um, pension obligations and medical obligations that they were they were obligated to, and you know bankruptcy ended up being the only course yeah. to deal with you know kind of that legacy. But the reality is the company really didn't put it aside enough money when they were making right. money, you know right. So right. those are those are in some ways political decisions that could have been made for the benefit of everybody, including the company. But yeah. you know the you know management wanted bonuses and they wanted right. share buybacks and they right. wanted to reward investors instead. So, you yeah. know, it's, there are two dimensions there, and you have to ask what's, in my opinion, you have to ask what's to the greater benefit of the society, and, you know, who's, who are we really working for, so. Completely
1: agree, and I and I worry, and I, I, I suspect you do too, that, the, you know, this latest round of, of tax cuts, um, you know, I, we're already starting to see this, that, that the benefits are, are you know, not, not going into research and development, they're not going into workers' wages, right? They're being, they're being kept at the very topic yet, right? And, and, and those are decisions, you're again, to connect it to the, to the political climate, as you just say those are decisions that are being made in this particular political climate, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, and in a different political climate might induce those same corporations to make other decisions, like like we are going to, you know, uh, have a better health care plan, have a better family leave plan, give our workers wages, give our workers ed- opportunities for education, right? Yeah. You know, they could make those decisions, and, and, and clearly they're... There's no incentive
0: to do that right now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's entirely, yeah. entirely correct. As a matter of fact, um, I mean, there's been a number of studies that have shown that the vast majority of the money, uh, over 80 percent, has gone to basically share buybacks and, yeah. Um, yeah. you know that that type of application of the uh, of the the tax breaks and and revenue and not into investment into longer-term projects which would lead to more jobs and obviously expansion which would help the economy so
1: and and those are all then those are all you know those are tax revenues that aren't going to bridges and roads and schools and and technology in the schools technology in the rural rural areas and you know you just I, i find myself wondering you know, the same political forces that, that push through a tax cut like that while they want to gut public education and don't want to fund infrastructure. I find myself wondering, what does the country look like in their vision in, in another 10 years? And I yeah. honestly don't know. Yeah. Other than it, it feels pretty dark to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it. I think that's very, um, I think it's very ominous. And I think you really have to question the, The uh, patriotism and legacy that the something like that means for future generations Um, add into all of this, especially in terms of income inequality. Like you, you described the changes happening after the 70s and kind of the Rust Belt developing, but now we have AI coming on and. That displacing yeah. jobs that are not just manufacturing jobs, but, right. you know, I saw a, uh, a post this morning right. that um, banks are going to go through another round of, of layoffs um, in the coming year. And, you know, obviously those are not low-paying jobs. Those are not, you know, right. um, so it affects everybody. It affects everybody. Yeah. You're right. And I, I think you're and that's a great
1: point and that, that takes us back to what what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. You know, what what is the political response to that? You know, it depends on, you know, are you of a point of view that just says, Well, you know, look, really life is just about, you know, just take care of yourself, right? Um, you know, and if that's your point of view, then you look at these this wave of layoffs. And say, well, I, you know, I got mine. Good, good luck to those folks. I guess that those are just market forces. You know, yeah. that's just that's just how it happens. Um, or do you, you say, you know, if, if these layoffs affect you know members of my community, um, I, I don't. I would like there to be something, you know, a jobs training program or something for them to be to be able to turn to mm-hmm. uh, to try and and get back on their feet again. Yeah. Right. And and those and which whichever way you go, those are very political um, decisions, aren't they?
0: Yeah. But exactly. Uh. The the point is, it really goes down to a a foundational view of your your view of the world. You know. Yeah. In terms of how you how you're going to deal with it, and I would think that you know a person who is driven by you know, well, I got mine, you know, too bad for them perspective. And then something bad happens to them and their job. Like they're going to be a little bit embittered by that, you know. And when you look at the at the agitation and the anger in society today, I think that's yeah. a large part of it.
1: I completely agree. It's always been interesting to me as someone who teaches American history um, that the allure of the self-made man, the yeah. self-made person, you know, and, and, and what, what keeps it going is that, of course, throughout American history, there have been some, right, some spectacular successes. Um, but the, the, the allure of that, the mythology of that, has so much power over kind of the nitty-gritty... Um, Fact of of how
0: American capitalism is a you know is a pretty rough and tumble game actually yeah and it doesn't doesn't
1: treat everyone very fairly a lot
0: of the time yeah um that self made man that's that's a uniquely American perspective
1: um largely I would say yeah um I'd say it's largely American um it's you know. Part of it has to do with just the going back to the late 1700s with the Adam Smith view of, of capitalism mm. um, and where, yeah, I mean, Smith was a more complicated thinker than this. But the way the way that classical economic theory gets understood is that, you know, the market is just driven by these individuals competing against one another and so on and so forth. Um, and that, you know, theoretical level that you can you can grasp that, but that, you know, that then, um, especially in American context, came to, to take on sort of it, it came to explain how it really was, as opposed to theorize about how it, it, it might work. And you take that idea and you plant it in in a landmass such as as North America has, where it just seems like it's endless opportunity. Uh, unfolding and awaiting anyone who can just sort of you know plant their flag on the ground and take their stand and and that's you know that that really is makes for a very powerful mm. um, self-made madness. it is it is largely american i don't know enough to say whether it's uniquely american but it but it certainly is largely an american um, um,
0: sensibility. Yeah. well that that perspective uh, i think makes a lot of sense in terms of again, the landmass and kind of planting your flag because if you're in an established society, it becomes right. difficult to find that new place to plant your flag yeah. without having some yeah. sort of baggage attached to you or to, that it's going to be holding you back in terms of being able to make those those kinds of changes in your, that's, your lifestyle. That's right. And, and historically
1: speaking, comparatively, there has been uh, a much greater degree of social mobility in the American experience, um, for all of its for all of the obstacles put up in the way of, of persons of color and so forth. No question about that. And women, right? Um, all that said, and that's important. Nonetheless, comparatively, there has been a greater degree of social mobility uh, than say you know France yeah. of, of the 18 and 1900s and into the 20th century and into the 21st century but what how that oftentimes gets translated in the American experience is because there is a greater degree of social mobility Americans over the years have liked to think that then there's just total opportunity anyone can do it right yeah. uh, and of course that's not the case.
0: Well, and I think increasingly in the past 20 or 30 years, it's been, become even less the case with, yep. you know, the uh, removal of social supports, which um, yep. act as protect downside protection, and the yep. kind of unbridled, you know, it's not a level playing field. You know, uh, oh, no. Amazon Correct. coming on to the uh, the economic map has destroyed how many mom-and-pop stores that were started in the 50s or 60s. You know, it's, you know, yeah. it's and, not... Yeah, and, and Walmart before that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. For sure.
0: Yeah. So what do you think this means in terms of moving forward? Like, how do we... What are some of the solutions to deal with in- income inequality in terms of like the American experience of 2020 going forward?
1: Well, that's a really good question, Jim. Um, I, I think um, I, I look at what's happening on the Democratic side of, of the ticket uh, where um, where there does really seem to be um, new energy on on the left of the Democratic Party, whether it's Bernie or AOC um, um, or Elizabeth Warren, that it, that the fact that they pulled the Joe Bidens of the world um, uh, further to the left um, is is interesting to me. Right, that there, we haven't seen that kind of progressive energy. I mean, Obama, even Obama, wasn't as progressive as, as some of these candidates are yeah. uh, right now. And 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 that I wonder if, if, if that isn't a, a, a signal out there that that there's a kind of reckoning that um, that that the only way that the only way you're going to get some of these social supports uh, you know funded again or or restarted is is that you've you've got to win politically. You've got to you know you've got to uh, and that, and I think we're seeing this at the local levels too, right? That you hear the stories about uh, how many people are are on the on the left uh, are just running for local offices. That those numbers are way up since 2016. Yeah. And and so I wonder if we haven't you know if 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 we haven't as uh, they, they say sort of tipping point been reached that you know that that you know you've got it you've got, to, you've got to, to enter the political process yourself at any level and try to make it happen and try to convince people um, that that this is a better way to go. It's going to be an awfully awfully tough fight because you know uh, as as there are countless articles in in, in the air today about you know just the not just the political divide but the fact that um, you know part of the political spectrum, we can't even agree on what's real. And, yeah. and yeah. I, don't, I don't know how you'd get through that. I wish I did. My concern is that as long as Fox News is making money and on the air, it's going to be a real tough, tough haul. What,
0: um, what's your view on universal basic income? It's a concept that's come up a couple of times.
1: Right. Andrew Yang. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, I, I haven't looked that closely at it, to, to be honest with you. Uh, but but it, it's an idea that is not new, right? I mean, if you go all the way back to, to Huey Long in the 30s, um, that in the in the depths of the Great Depression, um, um, he argued that that it that that what people need is just you know, they just need to know that, that they can have some food at, at the end of the month, have some money at the end of the month to buy some food. And so he yeah. was proposing uh, basically a universal uh, um, income. Now, the, and, it, and, and it was very popular for a, for a period of time. Um, uh, Long's career was cut short because he got assassinated, uh, not because he was defeated at the ballot box, um, but... And and the the appeal of the idea, I think, I think is something we're seeing here today. That you know, that where so many people live in such economic uncertain times, that um, you know, can't the wealthiest nation in the world just can't? They have the ability to just provide a minimum basic. You know, here you go, right? And that idea was very popular in the Great Depression for obvious reasons. Right? People would, you know, they'd rather be working, but they'd also rather not go hungry. Yeah. Um, and um, so, and and it it's intriguing to me. I think it's I, I think it's intriguing that, that we live, you know, in a in a time where you know stock market is going to new heights, and yet that idea has has taken some traction among a lot of Americans. And that that says to me, and I, I suspect you agree, that says to me that there, the depth of economic anxiety out there is, is great. Yeah. Right. It's, it's people are really feeling concerned about, you know, what, what does my economic future hold?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm willing to work hard, I'm willing to take
1: student take on student loan debt, but I don't have any confidence that there's gonna be anything for me, um, you know, in, in, in five years. And that's that's worrisome. Yeah. so I don't you know, I haven't like I said, I haven't looked at the affordability. I don't know Excuse me, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know the mechanics of it. I don't know how it actually works. Um, but if you think about it, it's not. It's not all that different from what Social Security says, right? That that in you know that, that what the Social
0: Security system does is it, these are safety nets. Yeah. Right. The, the government's not going to take care of you, right? You still got to get out
1: there and do your best. Uh, but that, that there will be a safety net there. Uh, and, you know, so if you, if you kind of lump it in with those ideas, um, I'm,
0: you know, I'm pro-safety net. Let's put, it, let's put it that way. Gotcha. What, um, I'm curious, uh, before we uh, finish off here, I know we've been going for a while, but uh, I'm curious as a, uh, as a historian, what's your view of how climate change is going to affect, um these kinds of issues, politics, income inequality, and so forth. What role does climate change have?
1: I think we're just starting to get our minds around that question, right um, And I think it's got to have a central role in policy and then the reshaping of the economy going forward. Um, You know, one of the things that I love about teaching at St. Mary's College is that interaction with this rising generation of students. Um, And I I would say, you know, 30, 35 and under, right? Um, To them, this is not a debate. This is not just a political um, talking point right, um, this, is, this is their future, and it's not funny, right, and, and they're dead serious about, about you know pressing, right, that their, their civic life is going to be, whether it ends up in politics or teaching or, or whatever, right, running for mayor, sitting on the city council, their civic life is, I think, going to be largely driven by what do we do about climate change, Right, because so much flows from that, right? National security flows from it. Income inequality flows from it. Um, um, and so, yeah, I think it is. It's just got to be the central issue going forward. And I actually, you know, I actually maybe maybe I'm you know glass half full here, but I am so impressed with the, the commitment that our college students have uh, to to engaging in this and to try to, to wrestle with it and find solution and, and look at the policy implications. And I might add, this includes, this is across the board, college Democrats, college Republicans. Well, if there's one thing they can agree on, at least at St. Mary's, it is how
0: centrally important dealing with climate change is going to be going forward. Good. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Um. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat today, Chuck. Uh, If people want to learn more about the book, um, where can they get the book? What's it? What's it called?
1: Okay, the the title is Republican Populist: Sparrow Agnew and the Origins of Donald Trump's America. Uh, You can go to the the University of Virginia Press (UVA). Uh, University of Virginia Press has it for sale, and of course. Amazon has it for sale as well.
0: Awesome. If somebody wants to uh, talk to you more about these kinds of issues, how could they reach out to you?
1: Sure, that'd be great. So my St. Mary's email is c j holden c-j-h-o-l-d-e-n at smcm that's St. Mary's College of Maryland edu and my Twitter handle is
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me, Jim.
0: Awesome. Talk soon.